Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the years of the Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, wherever, whomever, however. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, episode 35. Good CCP theory to you all. How are you doing? Well, off the top, Instagram, nemthiango underscore primordial, Patreon, patreon.com slash Alan Averill with two capital A's if you want to hear... Other random nonsense, demos, songs, bits and pieces that don't make the cut. Go over to Patreon. The show is sponsored by Hate Couture, hateful yet tasteful, apparel. Who wouldn't want an inverted cross bottle opener, among many, many other things? The veneration of tyrants and serial killers for commercial gain? Hmm, who knew? www.hate as in hate couture c-o-u-t-u-r-e 616.com put in the promo code alan and you will get free shipping and i may also say that there is a winter sale going on at metal blade www.metalblade.com you can get lots of my own primordial albums for cheap enough over there but also i would say the landing page for the new Dread Sovereign is up and running. Maybe some of you heard the little bonus uh, podcast that I made, which actually had a Dread Sovereign song at the end of it. Well, the video for it came out last week, and it's doing pretty well. But over at metalblade.com slash dreadsovereign slash, you can see the landing page and order one of the 
oddly colored vinyls that I picked out. So head over there and take a look. So what are we going to talk about? Well, off the top, this episode is going to be about football, sport, and what community means. So, if you don't like any of those three things, you may as well switch off now. But if you do hate the corporate globalist agenda, maybe keep listening. Maybe keep listening. It's no secret that, indeed... I love football. I've always played football. What kind of footballer am I, I hear you ask? A no-nonsense, a no-nonsense tough-tackling midfielder is the answer. But you probably guessed that, right? You probably guessed that. No fancy tricks, no fancy stepovers. In fact, if you do that, the chances are I'll kick you or knock you over or try and foul you. The looks of dismay on some of the younger lads that I play with. Um, football is such an interesting thing even if you don't give a shit about it, which maybe you don't. But it's so easy to see what countries different people are from um, reflected in the way they play football. Irish people, Irish, traditionally tended to be, as I said, no-nonsense, hoof it, kick it hard, tackle hard, run hard, bloody blads. Because as kids, we learned to play on a full-size pitch in the lash and rain, and whoever was the biggest got the ball. There was no such thing as learning skill, as learning any concept of space. I was once in Italy. In fact, I was in Italy recording the Void of Silence album, um, which maybe if you don't know, I sang on a record by an Italian, I suppose, funeral doom band called Void of Silence. And the album is called Human Antithesis. <clears throat> maybe 2005, six. Not sure. Anyway, it's on my YouTube channel, I think, buried in the back videos, if you ever want to check it out. Gloomy stuff. I was at a train station and there was, I guess, training pitches just below the train station, somewhere outside Rome. And there were these small kids there playing with small goals and a small ball. And it was clear that what they were learning to do was not keep score, but to learn close skill, to learn all those kind of things, pass the ball around, express themselves. Never, never. As a kid in Ireland, it was about winning. It was about hard tackling. In fact, more than hard tackling, fouling, and about kicking the ball the furthest. And that's what I carried with me. It's not that I can't do the odd bit of skill, but I don't appreciate it. Well, I mean, I do appreciate it, but I'll still probably try and foul you. Do you know what I mean? Winning is sort of more important. But anyway. And again, it's reflected in the looks of disgust, horror, confusion um, from the people I play against. Um, depending on the country they're from, I find they express themselves differently. You know, South Americans, the joy is in the scoring of the goal. The joy is in the skill. Same with North Africans, guys, that we play against. Constantly talking, constantly laughing, brilliant attention to skillful detail, as if everyone is playing for their YouTube reel and the looks of uh, confusion when I come in to hack the guy who just went round me the time before out of... Anger, frustration, and of course my middle-aged slowness of gait. They go, look at me like, what? But of course, for a competitive middle-aged Irishman who grew up in the 1980s, winning is what counts, and winning in a fast, aggressive manner. 
So uh, you could say Brian Robson is my spirit animal or maybe Roy Keane. In fact, I met Brian Robson once. Won't mean anything to you if you don't like football, but captain of the England 1986 football team. I was DJing in a bar in Dublin City Centre and um, Brian Robson happened to be in the bar, but happened to be in the bar uh, unbeknownst to me until the owner of said bar tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, you like football, don't you? Uh, Meet Brian Robson. And just turned Brian Robson around. All right, how are you going? Kind of whatever his voice was. And I just stood there in shock. He was absolutely pissed out of his face. And he goes, what's that, son? I went motorhead and he goes, I fucking grand or whatever. I don't know how I've sort of lapsed into some sort of Yorkshire accent there. Either way, my camera on my phone wouldn't work. No one believes me. But there he was, pissed out of his face, listening to motorhead. Iron Fist in the bar I was DJing in. Add that one up. Anyway, my spirit animal. Tough tackling, Brian Robson. That's the kind of thing I admire. None of your fancy stepovers. None of your fancy whatever other fancy moves there are. I'll probably kick you. Anyway, so this podcast is partly because a friend of mine said to me, you miserable bastard, is there any chance you might do a podcast that could be uplifting or positive or whatever else? And I thought, yeah, good point. Good point. So, rather than bemoan the state of the corporate globalist agenda, which I mentioned earlier, and their imposition of a micromanaged, digitized, authoritarian state, which is in the mail, um, let's talk about football and let's talk about community and around the community that exists around sport, which may very well be an antidote to the C-theories to the globalist agenda or whatever else you want to call it. Off the top, Maradona. I think the greatest footballer ever. I remember in 1986 playing football in the garden of my parents' house. Very typical, you know, typical kid who didn't have, um, let us say, lived on a main street. So didn't have this kind of suburban cul-de-sac of kids to play with. But you would play against a wall. That's what you would do all day, every day, kick a ball against a wall. And what I happened to do was kick a ball through a window in my parents' house. And my grandfather happened to be there and fixed the window, hoping my parents wouldn't notice. But through the broken window frame, we watched England and Argentina. And it had only been four years since the Falklands War. And seeing as my grandfather was in the... Um, English military this sort of rubbed him up the wrong way the fact that Argentina were playing England and his roars of protestation as Maradona scored the hand of God scored the famous handball the first goal against England and yet the second goal was probably one of the greatest goals ever ever you should know it look it up on YouTube if you have never seen it Maradona virtually hauled a rather average Argentinian team to the World Cup finals. And it's been curious to watch since his death the way society has dealt with his legacy because he was for sure a flawed genius, a character who embodied every human emotion. Um, He was an absolute demon for the drugs, a demon for the booze, a demon for women, but yet at the same time, had this incredible skill, was from the poorest background. And it's funny, sometimes I listen to people trying to reevaluate 
his character and they try it's as if they start, try and sort of put manners on him put manners on his memory by discussing him in terms of me too and this kind of thing which i understand to a point but judging the man by the standards of 2020 considering he more or less grew up in a a barn in a a dirt a dirt town um you know a family of five or six with their father barely able to feed the family. You kind of understand then why when he was sold for a million dollars, he appeared with a fur coat and a fancy car. Um, trying to, how we say, academically place a structure or a yoke around football, which is, let's be straight here, someone kicking a ball, is, I think, a fool's errand. And especially taking on unreconstructed humans, unreconstructed men from the 1970s, 60s and 80s. This is, of course, not to um, justify some of their actions. They were terrible men, beasts also some of the time. But with that, with that side of their flawed side of their character, you also got this incredible genius. And Maradona was exactly that. And if you were never old enough to actually have seen that match, that World Cup in 1986, I was 11 years old. And it was when I was cognizant enough to know, of course, all about football. In fact, at 11 or 12, I was sent to um, a football camp, I guess you would say, where they sent talented young kids to see if they were good enough to maybe pick one or two out to go. I would have said semi, semi amateur pro and, you know, spot, you know, spotted by Irish teams of the time. Of course, I fell short of whatever that standard was. But at the same time, I do remember shortly after that World Cup going to a football summer camp, um, which was hosted by an elusive Pat Jennings who seemed to just hide out in his dormitory and who could blame him. But to see, to be cognizant of that 86 World Cup and to see Maradona in all his crazy glory as he just made players look foolish just it was the first time of course people forget that football was not on tv all the time back then and the world cup was the place the chance you got to see all these these the stoichkovs and the you know their exotic players from the south americas from other countries from the eastern bloc who can forget the Bulgarian team of 86 and their incredible mullets their Pandev and all these players I'm sure he he possibly is not the right name. Russian players of the same generation who sort of captured our imagination because it was set to the backdrop of the Cold War and you knew these countries mainly only from their mention in the news. So, Maradona. Maradona dying. Kind of, um, I won't say it hit me deeply if or affected me particularly emotionally, but it definitely made me go back and check out Reels of his playing and what he did for the city of Napoli to take this poor city from the south and haul them to the Scudetto to the title is quite an incredible thing the Messi's and Ronaldo's of these world are cosseted players surrounded by a team of um, a team of advisors um, playing with other great players whereas you know Maradona played on a rough old pitch rough old pitches kicked from here to there, got up every time and did what he did. But there's something about what Maradona represents that represents a form of the human condition that I think modern society has tried to take to erase, a form of flawed masculinity. Um, 
that I think doesn't sit well with the Western transom of 2020. However, that was not my intention of making the podcast just about Maradona. What I wanted to talk about was how one man can affect the spirits of a nation and take on a nation's politics, can take on a nation's political backgrounds. And this is one of the things most people who don't like football don't really realize is that most football teams, their origins are in 1880, 1890, 1900, and they represented in many countries the workers' team against maybe the state team. They represented fascism against communism. They represented um, Marxist workers, socialist ideals against the royal, the royal team or whatever you want. And this is exemplified across all big cities, whether it's Barcelona and Real Madrid, whether it's in Rome, whether it's in Milan, whether it's even in England, teams that were traditionally Protestant and Catholic, Celtic and Rangers, Everton and Liverpool, Manchester City and Man United. Why do they wear red and blue? For example, why do the teams wear blue that are Protestant? Hmm, it's a curious an interesting conversation. Why did none of the teams from the former DDR ever make it into the Bundesliga, into the into the first division? They were all relegated upon reunification within a couple of years, all of them. There's some very great documentaries to watch about why did East German football fail? These massive old crumbling stadiums barely filled. And of course, economically, once the country reunited, they didn't have the money. They didn't have the money to compete with the West. And so there's soccer is set to incredibly interesting political backgrounds and um, social backgrounds back in the formation of states and cities in the post-industrial revolution of the 1870s, 1880s. And there's probably a football team near you. In definitely in Ireland, I go and see Bohemians, as I've mentioned once or twice before, sometimes. Sometimes. But we didn't grow up in Ireland watching local football there was no shamrock rovers on the tv or bohemians on the tv which is a terrible shame because that would have made those teams much more popular in the 80s and 90s instead we watched irish players in england whether it was paul mcgrath or dennis Irwin or kevin moran or john aldridge or kevin sheedy or liam brady the list is endless from back then in the 80s and this sort of brings me in a curious segue to the person i want to talk about because this man um, I suppose there's an incredible documentary. Well, I don't suppose there is an incredible documentary called Finding Jack Charlton out at the moment. And what I wanted to really try and dig into is to how one stoic, no-nonsense Yorkshireman from England, of all places, managed to give the entire Irish nation probably the greatest lift that it ever had. How is that possible? People say that the the Italian 90 kick-started the Celtic Tiger. And there's there is some truth to that, but I'm gonna try and go back and have a look at that and look at why. How could one no-nonsense guy take on a country that was riven, that was driven by sectarianism? Um, and of course I'm talking about Ireland, I'm talking about the North and the South. Jack Charlton was um an English World Cup winner in 1966. He was known as a no-nonsense, straight-talking Yorkshireman um, who had, didn't have an incredible pedigree in management. But in 1986, Ireland had a succession of almost, almost teams that had almost made it, almost got to a finals. But we'd never made it to the World Cup. We'd never made it to the European Championships. And let's be clear about this. Ireland in the 1980s was a grim and desperate place. It was brutal. 
it was, well, you know, I see similarities within the lockdown Ireland of right now as in the 1980s. And I was old enough to remember it. Entire streets in the city centre just boarded up. Temple Bar, which maybe you've gone to if you have ever been to Dublin on a weekend, was just more or less empty buildings. It's where people went to buy heroin. It was full of junkies. Young people were leaving in their droves, in their thousands, in their tens of thousands. You, you went through college, you went through school. In fact, if you've even bothered to go to college and then you emigrated, you went to the USA, you went to Australia, you went to the UK, anything to do work on building sites in London to scrape enough money to save for a flight to New York. And a friend of mine um, who I grew up with as a teenager in 1989 left with, you know, 200 Irish pounds in his pocket and a flight to New York. And made it. I made it. I meant it. Met him almost twenty years later, playing in America. That's another story. But we had we had hemorrhaged people. The population of Ireland before the famine was over eight million. Afterwards, we'd lost almost four million people, um, population-wise. Um, you know, two million people left. Two million people died. Roughly speaking, don't get all mathematical in the comments, but. The population of Ireland, let's say, in 1850 stood at over 4 million. And I think, if I'm not incorrect, I probably should have looked this up, but by 1979 was about 2.6 or 7 million. Consistently throughout the 20th century, Ireland hemorrhaged people. People left. And the troubles the troubles started in the early 1970s. If you don't know what that is, maybe it's because you're from a generation that doesn't remember that everything that you would have heard about Ireland in the news in the 1980s and 1970s was associated with bombings and killings. Um, you can look back through the podcast as to why the six counties in the north belonged to England or belonged to the United Kingdom at the time. Um, I'm not really here. I'm not really going to get into the politics of that right now. But needless to say, then Ireland in the 1980s was a grim place. It was run through with unemployment. There was little hope for young people. There was no nightlife, nothing to do. There was very few bands or music coming from here. In fact, it was a pretty hopeless place. You had you 2 who were like the shining light of, let's say, a band who had made it in the public eye. Of course, we have 70s bands like Lizzie and Van Morrison and um, that kind of thing. But in the 1980s, they were about the beacon of hope for the Irish music scene, which hung its hat on being B, C, D and E grade versions of that. If you ever want to see something horrific, watch um, the Irish self-aid. It's like the Irish live aid from 1986 to watch the plethora of awful local bands. But anyway, I suppose if I was clever, I'd do a reaction video to that on YouTube, right? Hmm. Well, anyway, Ireland in the 1980s was a grim place. Um, I know that there are people who uh, have kind of tried to go back and how can we say say that it was ruined by gentrification all this kind of stuff and you know there are points to that and there are not points to that most definitely there is an attempt to reform the image of the 70s and 80s Ireland as as being you know this sort of local parochial community that uh, wasn't as I said broken by immigration, broken by poverty. Ireland was a second world country, a grim place. Every day I remember growing up, going to school and there would be something about a bombing, a shooting, um, etc. Unemployment figures. It was, I mean, of course, the people were great. They had community. And I think that people probably in the 80s were 
better. Is that the right phrase? Better, better. I don't know what that means. But most definitely, they understood more about community and they understood more about society and what made Ireland Ireland. Most definitely, I would say that than now. And in many ways, the Ireland of 1989 or 1990, I preferred in a way to the Ireland of, let's say, 2009. It was far less conceited. It was far, it was far less. It had its chest far less puffed up with the feeling of its own cocaine ego. Anyway, that's another story, I suppose. Maybe I've addressed how I took part in that now and again. Maybe. Anyway, so Jack Charlton arrives to be the manager of Ireland in 1986. And I was was at the very first game against Wales. And I remember it because it was when Neville Southall broke his leg, the Everton goalkeeper. And Ian Rush scored that day and Ireland lost 1-0. And that was more or less... I remember going to every game and most home games between 1986 and 1991 or two. Um, Strangely enough, um, with a friend of the family who was an ardent trade unionist, an ardent socialist, who was very much... It was very interesting because at 11 or 12 or 13, I got all the politics of the time. I was filled in about apartheid, about Palestine, about all these kind of things. And it had a great impact on me as a young teenager to be always, how we say, rooting for the political underdog. And it also gave me an insight into the, um, I suppose, the cultural political inheritance of Ireland as a post-colonial state that had very great... um, The working class institutions, the unions, had a very great power in Ireland. Very great power in Ireland. And that's one of the things that confuses me greatly about the Ireland of 2020. How how the, let's call them, the middle class academic media class have come to seemingly despise the working class. Despise the man who works with his hands. Yet they were the people who made the state, essentially. Anyway. I digress. But this tough, no-nonsense man called Jack Charlton came over, did interviews on the Irish, the late, late show of the time, just saying, you know, avoiding questions about sectarianism, avoiding questions about the IRA, saying he's only here to do a job and this and that and the other. And we had great players back then. We had great, great players, whether it was Kevin Sheedy, whether it was Paul McGrath, um, perhaps the greatest Irish player of his generation until Roy Keane. Kevin Moran, so many good players. And it's very hard to describe what a beaten down country Ireland was in the 1980s, demoralised to the point of, I think, a form of despair, maybe existential despair. I keep using that phrase when I discuss society now, but there's an existential ennui, ennui, ennui in society at the moment. E-N-N-U-I. Have I got that right? Ennui. Look it up if you don't know the meaning of the word. But that's what it feels that there is in society now, a kind of sad demoralization. A similar kind of thing in the 1980s, only the fact that everybody wanted to kick the heads off each other after the pub. There was no nightclubs, just, you know, 11 p.m. or waiting for the night bus, everyone kicking the heads off each other in the streets. I remember brawls on the street, 30, 40, 50 strong people kicking the heads off each other. Anyway, see? Anyway, so... Jack Charlton gave me two of the most incredible moments of my young teenage years, um, along with seeing Metallica and seeing Slayer and all this kind of thing. The first was a scoreline that read England nil, Ireland won, 1988, Stuttgart. And it's very hard to describe that. That would be the equivalent, I suppose, in mythology 
of Albania beating... No, this is a bad example. Let me think about this. Um, Iran beating the USA in the World Cup, maybe. Who remembers that match? Or any post-colonial state beating their oppressive masters historically in folklore. Ireland won. England nil. And it was quite incredible what a lift it gave to the nation. But the fact that they won a game, won a game of football against England, was such an incredible thing. Header by Ray Houghton in the net. And I remember kids at school the next day being barely able to contain their excitement, barely able to even even stay quiet for classes. The lift that it gave a country that had never even barely worn anything of note to that point was quite incredible. And you could feel a sense of um, a sense of worth. Something it's very hard to describe. It was an almost almost a spiritual thing. But Ireland just kept going. They were unbeaten in Lansdowne Road for forty or fifty matches at this time. Um you know, it was it was it was the Gagan Press, the Gagan Press of the eighties. If you watch football in the seventies and eighties, it's a slow kind of game. Cruyff is able to turn. The Brazilians have time on the ball, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Jack Charlton identified that um, they didn't have really have the players to play like that, and they pressed high and quick and fast. Um, got the ball back in the final third, and got the ball wide and crossed it in. And then you had Frank Stapleton. I saw Frank Stapleton play. You had John Aldridge. You had Niall Quinn. You had um, you had players who were willing to run through brick walls for at this no-nonsense Englishman. And what he was doing, even if he didn't really understand at the time, was helping to heal a form of sectarian wound that was deep in Irish society, that an Englishman could come over and take charge of the Irish football team and not be met with some forms of howls of cynicism and derision from sections of Irish society because he just came over, didn't hide, um, stood in the pub and had pints with people, was quite available to the public. I remember standing in Lansdowne Road back in 1987 and the players coming in on the coach and they would just get off the coach and you could have, you know, within a metre and a few people access or at least, you know, see the players right up close. Jack Charlton would stop and stand and he'd always be available to go around the country, to speak to kids, to whatever. And no one should underestimate the power of this one, um, this one no nonsense, no nonsense guy who quite unbeknownst to him was setting about healing wounds, um, sectarian wounds, uh, deep divisions within Irish society that could have never, he could have never taken charge of that team in 1976. There's absolutely no way, I feel. However, what came next is perhaps one of the greatest sensations I've ever had as a teenager. Um, and that was Italia 90. In 1990, Ireland qualified for the World Cup and they went to Italy. And the first match was a dour draw against England. Then I think they drew against Egypt and then they drew their last match as well. I should have looked it up to remember who they drew with. Um, Holland, was it? I can't remember. Anyway, I should have looked that up. However, three draws got Ireland through the group stages. And if the football is not interesting to you, what is interesting is what happened next. And that is the most spontaneous expression of joy 
I think I've almost ever seen on the streets of Ireland, um, apart from the World Cup in 94, but I'll get to that. But this 1990 seemed to be a turning of the corner, a turning of the old poverty. You had, we had a politician in the late 1980s called Albert Reynolds, um, who had quietly taken uh, his place after Gareth Fitzgerald, I think, if I'm not incorrect, with Fina Gael, a great statesman. But Albert Reynolds had helped to, had helped the uh, Anglo-Irish agreement and the uh, peace process. But he'd also negotiated a tax clause for foreign investment within Ireland. That is the 0.5 or 1% lower tax rate here for foreign investment companies, which uh, many countries in the EU have been trying to repeal for decades but this encouraged investment for the first time in Ireland in far, by foreign companies. And it kick-started what then became the Celtic Tiger. And it can be no... I cannot downplay the significance of this 1990, this, this event that happened when Ireland beat Romania on penalties to go into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. It was the first time Ireland had ever won anything achieved anything in a sense in this in this regard apart from Sean Kelly winning the cycling and Barry McGuigan and a few other boxers as I remember or uh, Dennis Taylor I suppose even despite the fact he was from the north we, we we claimed him as winning the snooker championship in 83 but sport played such a huge part in a poor country it's one of the things that people in the west I think in the new middle class academic west the comfortable class forget what getting to the World Cup means for. Look at the last World Cup, Peru or a country like this. For small nations like Costa Rica or Ecuador or um, Asian countries who've never been there before, what that means to a small country to go and wave the stick at the Italys and the Frances and the Germanys and, and have a go is something incredible to the moral economy of a country. And that's what it did to Ireland. I will never forget... The moment when Ireland beat Romania on penalties and Paki Bonner saved that penalty, it was as if no one knew what to do, how to celebrate. People rushed out of their houses onto the street to stop traffic. Just they, people lost their minds. They couldn't actually, they didn't even know how to celebrate. Like we had an impromptu street party on our road. The road was just shut. People were just literally going crazy. I've never seen such expressions of joy just Thousands of people basically out in the city centre just literally hugging each other. To what? To just go to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Now, and this is where I come to this as a form of, you know, a little form of allegorical tale or something. Is that the right phrase, allegorical? This, this, this joy seems like something that the terms of the situation that we are in now would never happen that is trying to crush this form of communality this communal joy this spontaneous joy right now under this terms of this lockdown this situation all of this kind of stuff now i didn't in a sense start this podcast to use the joy of that moment to cast a shadow or to cast some um well, cast a shadow is not correct to say but definitely to view this modern situation through the prism of that moment of absolute spontaneous joy of an entire nation where people lost their minds and came out and just hugged strangers and just wept in the street. And that was because of this man, this Jack Charlton, had actually done this and more was to come. But what is happening now in society is so anti-human. 
it's so anti-human i was i did a post i did a a podcast that i didn't release about an instagram message i made on a sunday never make it never post on social media on a sunday if you've got the blues but it was about the anti-human nature of where we are in this society and how i think there's a genuine attempt to repress our human um our human sense of agency within this remote living potentiality and something like what happened in 1990 would never happen could never happen it can never happen in that in this in this prospect that might be arriving down the tracks it might not be it might be my paranoia but that's why i'm trying to do this podcast to exercise that opinion to give it a little air and just see how it feels to observe 2020 through the eyes of 1990 and it certainly looks a certain way it certainly looks a certain way because as i said in that ill thought out post in instagram post that saturday morning where you go with your dad to watch the local football which you should you should because that's an integral part of your local community and if anything this situation we're in right now is an attempt well even if it's not an attempt it's a circumstance that it will kill elements of the local community small businesses it will kill um history folklore in your community and the football team is an integral part of that and you don't go with your dad to the packed terraces to watch Bohemians and Shamrock Rovers or Shelburne or whatever your local team is. And I go, I often go and watch local football teams when I'm on tour, um, whether it's in Bulgaria or Hungary or Slovenia or um, Poland. I mean, I've seen Legia Warsaw, I've seen CSK Sofia, I've seen Maribor, I've seen blah, 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 blah. Point is, the point is that that moment doesn't happen where you go with your dad or your mates or whatever and you meet up in the morning and you go to go and see the local team in the second, third, fourth division and experience that unbridled joy of your local team scoring a goal and that doesn't happen in a distanced, remote future. That sense of community doesn't happen. All you will get is Ronaldo and the endless cycle of Ronaldo's piped in to your screen. You'll get the UEFA Champions League forever with the same teams consistently and always playing each other. That's what it will be. And if they find a way to not let fans back into the stadium, could that just, you know, would they just, would they just roll with that? Anyway, I digress. Jack Charlton, I would say, brought together a nation almost and gave us one of the first moments of communal joy ever in Irish society, at least that I can remember. 1990, just people on the street losing their mind. And it didn't stop there. i never forget in 1994, um, Ireland beating Italy. They, um, the famous Ray Houghton goal and the, the celebrations that happened after that were the same, were the same unbridled joy in the streets. And there was a moment with the Irish football team. Now I may have got this foggy in my memory but there was a moment where the Irish football team was in town um, on a, you know, celebrating come having come home from the 94 World Cup the same day Nelson Mandela was. And so the mingling of crowds between the celebration of the Irish football team and Nelson Mandela getting the freedom of the city was a very strange and sort of magical movement of people in the streets. And there was this incredible feeling of 
joy, of incredible kind of a very basic patriotism that wasn't wasn't rooted in all of the negative things that the media and people will tell you now that all of those things are that need to be rooted out of modern society. Um, it was a simple feeling of pride in your country. And for the first time in those couple of years, Jack Charlton, um, much beloved character, as I've said, gave Irish people a lift. A lift at a time when things seemed pretty grim in the 1980s. And as I said, uh, someone who's always loved sports, who's always loved football, who's always played football, um, they are two of my greatest memories. Um, those two, 1990 and 94, when Ireland qualified for those two World Cups, will never be replicated in my memory. I was 15 and 19, and so perfectly aged to just um, enjoy them for what they were. And that moment in 1990, when people just rushed out onto the streets to just wildly celebrate, um, somehow seems from a more, a less cynical time, a less cynical time of living, where people were more um, friendly, when people were more, well, apart from wanting to kick their heads off each other, but people had less, but, but they shared more. And they weren't cynical about everything to do, everything to do with um, nation and state. However, I do understand that right now, everyone should be cynical of the machinations of the state. So what and where does this leave us? My friend, bet me that I couldn't make a positive podcast. And so what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? What I wanted to say was to discuss what sport means, what community means, to see, to suggest how one man can change the, the mood of a nation and inspire a nation and also sidestep the sectarianism, the politics of a country that went back decades, hundreds of years and managed to be so beloved to Irish people that he just became one of them. And that's why sport matters. That's why sport does matter. And that's why it matters that I think that people try and, as I said, bring their kids to the local football team to rather than just sit them on the screen in front of Ronaldo, because sport is a metaphor for something else that's happening in society. The reason for this podcast, because it was it was jarred by the memory of watching Maradona that, that afternoon tear England apart and my English grandfather wildly gesticulating with fury through the broken window. And I thought, yeah, I should make a podcast about that. I should make a podcast about that. Because let's be honest, sport, at least here in Ireland, sport has been taken from us. We weren't able to play football during lockdown. Imagine that, not able to exercise, not able to take part in the simple joy of playing sports because that was judged unscientifically to have some detriment in this situation. Like I said, I'm not going to get into it too much, but definitely the death of Maradona spurred me on to try and make this podcast. So there you go. There you go. If you don't like football, fine and well. I'll get back into some other heavy metal or tales of impending slavery very soon. But even if you don't like football, what you take from it is um, take the word football and apply it to something else. Whatever that is that you like, whatever that is, whether it's you go think about the things that the t the things of the sense of community that is lost under the terms of lockdown. Whether that is the gig, the gig, the, the, the feeling when your favourite artist comes out on the stage of euphoria in a crowd, that doesn't happen. 
Um, whether it's going to that book launch with your favorite author, that favorite speaker coming to town that you wanted to hear, your drama workshop, your theater, your art class, laughing at your favorite comedian, sharing laughter amongst a room of strangers. Whatever sports tournament it is that you like, you won't be sitting in the crowd if there's no crowd. You never know, maybe even your right to political protest, whatever it may be. Don't forget, that doesn't happen under the terms of levels one to five. That doesn't happen. As I said to my friend, you're never going to dance again. I, I'm not going to sing. I did enough singing last week with the Black Sabbath. But I sang a bit of George Michael at her and um, she nearly had a fucking breakdown when I suggested that you don't get to dance with a stranger until you're at level zero. And are you going to be at level zero? Mm, now, there's a question. But you don't. And so therefore, think of all the things. Think of whatever it is that you like that isn't sitting in front of a screen that sense of communality that you get, community. Don't forget that doesn't happen under a continuation of these terms. Anyway, I'm going to get myself a reputation as a, a sea theorist and an anti this and anti that. And you know what? I'm not. I'm just pro-human. Just about, just about. But I'm losing patience. Anyway, my friends, this is the end of episode 35 and it's called why sport matters and how one man can change the mood lift a nation and so to jack charlton and maradona yeah this little drop in the ocean is for you and also the next time i kick one of those lads who tries to go around me with some fancy skill that one's also for you my friends episode 35 agitators anonymous i am alan averill and until next time, metal never bends. Later. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.